<laughs> this is Rag Radio, uh, and we come every every we come your way every week, every Friday from two to three p.m. Uh, on Co-op, which is a community radio station in Austin, Texas. It's uh, cooperatively run. Uh, it's the only cooperatively run radio station in the United States of America. Yeah, right. it's pretty unique that way. It's pretty very it's pretty cool, and it's also solar powered and uh, all volunteer. So there's one. Yeah. Uh, we are rebroadcast by a number of other stations around the country, uh, and our podcasts are up many places, including at Veterans Today at their website. Uh, they have much of our archives as well as always have the current show, and uh, they get millions of hits there. That doesn't mean we get millions of hits, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, still, it's cool. Yeah. It's all cool. Uh, the show gets around, and uh, and we get feedback from all over the place, and so we're delighted to have all of you with us out there. Um, we're delighted to have in the studio my uh, engineer and uh, uh, co-conspirator, uh, cohort, partner in crime, Tracy Schultz. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here, as always. Okay. And Roger Baker is here. Roger, uh, our old friend. And also barter in crime, <laughs> really, real no, uh, is uh, is taking pictures for us. Um, Susie Sheeler is not here today; she couldn't come. So, but we uh, send out our best to her. Uh, all right, uh, we've got two folks: one staring at me, and one on the phone. <laughs> uh, and that we have uh, Christopher Brown and Roddy Reed. Roddy, are you there? Can you hear us? Yes, I'm glad to be here, Thorne. Oh, it's it's an honor to have you. Um, we're talking about politics in the age of true dystopia. <laughs> uh, we're, uh, we're imagining better futures through new politics, speculative fiction, and radical scholarship. Uh, I have to tell you that these two guys, uh, and, and I'll tell you about them in a minute, uh, sent me so much wonderful material. <laughs> I always ask folks to say, hey, send me a few, you know, like talking points or give me some ideas of things that that I might not think of that you want to talk about. And they sent me this. These are, they're academics. you know, you got to understand. They, they sent me this wonderful outline uh, that ties together these two books. And I'm, we, you never know what we'll do on this show. Uh, but we're going to sort of follow it. Um, and uh, so, but we will digress because, oh, excuse me, I digress. Um, <laughs> Um, like just then <laughs> okay Christopher Brown and Roddy Reed who in very different ways anticipated some of the insanity of our current political climate and offer fresh ideas on how to engage with it and find our way to the other side uh, Christopher Brown uh, Austin based author of Tropic of Kansas uh, a dystopian novel it's a speculative novel uh, science fiction yeah science fiction sure it's science fiction uh, written before the elections and published last year by Harper Collins, that imagines an, a revolutionary uprising in a mirror version of the USA where climate crisis has destabilized the nation. Canada, Canada has built a border wall to keep out illegal American immigrants, and a charismatic CEO has become a fascist president. A Seattle Times noteworthy book of 2017 that NPR called a modern dystopian buffet. Uh, <laughs> frighteningly, frighteningly prescient. The nightly news with the volume turned up to 11. <laughs> and book list said that it reads like Cormac McCarthy meets Philip K. Dick. <laughs> of course, Philip K. Dick automatically comes to the, uh, 
comes to mind. And Kafka, Franz Kafka, <laughs> I think, too. So uh, I should also mention that this is not, I usually give a full bio, and that's not a full bio at all uh, of, uh, of Christopher. And I, uh, you're also a lawyer uh, and, and an academic, and you worked with the Attorney General's office? I'm, I'm also a lawyer, not an academic. I'm a working lawyer. I, uh, I'm currently working on my own, and I do community work as well as work with a lot of uh, technology startups, mainly doing mission-oriented financial services work. But I started out as a, uh, as a staff lawyer for the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, and, uh, uh, and did a lot of work in public interest before going into the private sector and in parallel have been uh, writing fiction and criticism throughout that period. But this is my first novel. Okay. Uh, that, I, and I, for some reason, thought you also taught or had taught. They won't let me into any classrooms for fear I'll pollute the minds of the well, children. Well, I, I think that that's, that's just as well, don't you think? <laughs> but Roddy is a scholar, for sure. Okay. Uh, you could have come to my classroom anytime. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and polluted it. Exactly. <laughs> polluted some minds. So, okay, um, then um, I've lost this. Uh, Roddy Reed scholar and activist, professor emeritus at the University of California, San Diego, whose new book, Confronting Political Intimidation and Public Bullying, A Citizen's Handbook for the Trump Era and Beyond, looks at the current harsh political climate of fear and intimidation, where it came from, and how it works. Part of the background story is the American tradition of the bully boss and the degraded workplace that have infected our politics. He provides a handbook for new modes of political engagement for an age of true dystopia, and all of the proceeds go to support the Indivisible Project. Very, very pretty awesome. important, very important group. <laughs> Wonderful Right, work. Indivisible Project is an activist group that was founded in January of last year, 2017, and they have over 6,000 chapters now nationwide. The largest one is in Austin, I might say, and the second largest one to which I belong is in San Francisco. Right, started by some Austin-based ex-Lloyd Doggett staffers, as I recall, who looked at what the Tea Party had done in response to Obamacare in 2009 and looked for a way to turn it on its head and uh, uh, put it to work in a different sort of grassroots mode. Right, in a much more positive manner, but still very, very strong, very energetic. Well, I have a hash a white-on-black hashtag resist uh, T-shirt that's from in- Indivisible. So. Awesome. Okay. Uh, that's which I love. <laughs> and I try to resist with it on a regular basis. So, okay, I, I think that the, I guess one of the things that's, that's sort of, it's odd, you hadn't written science fiction before, uh, uh, Chris, and, and this is, that's such an interesting and important medium, I think. I mean, for many of us who grew up uh, we grew up, and that was the first one of the first things that subverted us. You know, I mean, science fiction was always subversive, just like Mad Magazine and you know a few other things. Uh, but because it, it, it gave us ideas that we didn't get anywhere else, and and always there so frequently there was a big capitalist villain or an imperialist villain, uh, the space merchants, uh, whatever. Uh, and and so I think it's 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 a great medium, and it's a terrific book. Uh, and uh, and I love it. Uh, and and the other book is terrific too. Totally different kind of thing, but it's a it's a manual, 
you know, I mean, it really gives you, uh, it gives you some great ideas and insight. Um, okay, what was it that made you think that this would be a good show with the two of you? How do these ideas intertwine? Well, I think, you know, you, you, you talk about uh, the importance of science fiction, and, and uh, to me, science fiction and thinking about politics go very closely together. Or maybe that's how, my, how I found my way into science fiction, in part, was based on my interest in politics and political theory, uh, because at its root, especially progressive politics, and in the essence of the idea of being progressive, is the idea of imagining a better future, right? And if you look at the sort of history of Western political thought almost, going back for 500 years from, you know, the Enlightenment at least to, till the end of history when all of the state socialist experiments collapsed, there's this series of uh, kind of utopian counterfactuals that are sort of guiding political thought in a way of like an idea that if we rebuilt society along these lines, Maybe we could have, you know, a more authentically equal society or a more authentically participatory society or one that's just more just. Uh, and that utopian aspiration would kind of work against uh, the sort of, you know, pragmatic conservatism to produce, you know, real-world results. Um, so my book, Tropic of Kansas, uh, uh, which uh, was in part an effort to explore some of those ideas to write a really kind of a political science fiction that bit into the copper wire, uh, looking at the contemporary world through a sort of science fictional prism, kind of putting a funhouse mirror, if you will, up to the real world, is a good way to do it because you can talk about touchy issues in a way that doesn't sort of provoke conventional partisan response and maybe you can get people out of their normal modes of thinking. So I set out to imagine, you know, under what circumstances would America, you know, be in a circumstance that would look almost like Syria, you know, like a right. second civil war. Right. There are a lot of these second civil war books out there at the margins of popular culture, but they're usually kind of right wing and nutty and I wanted to do something from another angle. And so I imagined, well, it would have to be a lot worse, right? And as you say, it imagines, you know, sort of a much more extreme conditions, a kind of America going a little third world. The Tropic of Kansas at the title is sort of the part of the middle of the country that uh, has sort of, you know, degenerated into uh, uh, not quite a, an apocalyptic wasteland, but something kind of not far from what you see if you drive through certain rural counties of the country now. And I imagined, oh, you'll have a fascist president, you know, charismatic right. CEO becomes a fascist president. So I found Roddy through that. Okay, then let's go to Roddy yeah. now. And Roddy's book is, and then we'll come back yeah. and combine. Uh, Roddy Reed's book is called Confronting Political Intimidation and Public Bullying, A Citizen's Handbook for the Trump Era and Beyond. So, Roddy, tell us what you're doing with this book. Okay, uh, this is great. And, and uh, Chris and I actually did meet up around this figure of the savior CEO, what I call in my book, uh, and actually in a very early posting last, in July of 2016, uh, the um, uh, folk hero, you know, American folk hero, the CEO is American folk hero. And we found a lot in common, and, and, it, and it really has produced now an intellectual and political friendship, which is, is very valuable. So this book... Um, it goes back to actually to writing. I it was not a book initially. Initially, that wasn't the uh, project. It goes back to writing and research I did as an academic back to 2008 
at the end of the Bush years and the beginning of the Obama era, particularly the first set of essays were before even uh, Obama was on the horizon. And it was written out of a moment, a personal moment, if you like, of real political discouragement and despair. And I was just trying to see my way through what was going on. And I wasn't happy with what I was reading in the papers and what I was hearing in the way of a kind of analysis that gave me a way of thinking through all this. So I started writing some essays, and then it's interesting that, so the, the and I, I think that goal for myself, and it's now a goal I think for this book uh, and, for the, and for its readers, which is to provide a kind of map through this minefield of fear and intimidation we're living through on a daily basis right now, as a way to not only uh, understand what's going on, but by understanding what's going on, uh, diminish some of that, that real experience of, of anxiety and even fear that people have and that I have, and, uh, and, and give people a way to, you know, a sense of this is how it works, this is the MO, and it gives them a way to anticipate uh, what's happening such that we're not always thrust in this kind of reactive mode being buffeted by whatever comes out over a Twitter account or, or a news feed. So, um, so anyhow, but the book itself, is uh, how it became a book was, first of all, I stopped writing in 2011. I'd, and what happened was in January of 2011, you all and your listeners may remember, Gabriel Giffords was the target of a, of a, of a, you know, I was targeted and almost killed in a shooting that took the lives of six other people at a, a political gathering. And this is after a hard-fought campaign. Her opponent was a team, an ex-Marine Tea Party member, and she was being targeted even uh, as, uh, particularly as someone who defended the Affordable Care Act and vilified in those terms, in the most uncertain and, and very violent terms. And so when that happened, I just thought, well, what can writing do that would be commensurate to the horror of this event? So I set it aside as a writing and research project and I, w I got involved in other things uh, in, in my academic life for a while. And then Trump came along in 2015. And I looked around and I noticed, you know, this guy, he looks pretty familiar to me, but he doesn't seem to be, people don't seem to be grasping or t what he's up to and how serious a threat he is. And so um, the reason I maybe was able to pick up on it is that I have ties to the financial world. I have ties, uh, fa deep family ties to New York City. The world he comes from of these sort of uh, uh, freewheeling entrepreneurs, where every day is a new day and everything's a new deal, and what you lose today, you win back tomorrow. It's and very who aggressive. you hurt? Who you hurt today? You don't care about tomorrow. Well, yeah, there's a kind of ruthlessness to it all, right, and right. very a lot of it's about macho energy, and that's that's the attraction. Uh, I think Trump's not even that much interested into managing his wealth or accumulating it as into cutting the uh, cutting these deals and and the rush and the high he gets from it. I mean, sure he loves the glitz, but it's I think cuts. He's even more of an entrepreneur. So anyhow, so I had a I think a and I even had some inside stories about him. So uh, that I was told by people who had spent time with the guy. So anyhow, I began to say, well, this guy really, is, you know, it's quite possible he will go far. I didn't think personally he would get elected. I was, uh, but so neither neither did he. <laughs> well, he, he was in for it as uh, you know. I think to promote his brand and as a lark, and so he was. I think as stunned as everyone else. If you see, remember that picture of him and Obama in the White House, they just both look equally stunned. Anyhow, um, so but then um, I started blogging once this guy was up and running, and and then you know, and then a blog of mine was picked up 
by William Gibson, the science fiction writer, and retweeted it, and it got a lot of, it didn't go viral, but it got a lot of attention. And then I began to think, well, maybe I can turn this into a book project. So I wrote it very quickly uh, in the spring of last year through the summer, about four or five months, building on this early research, like I said. And then, um, and I decided, look, I want it out there quickly. I want it to reach people quickly, widely, even internationally. I want it to be cheap. And so that argued for publishing it myself, skipping the academic and commercial publishing world, and going through what's Amazon KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing, which is, you know, I went to the monster, uh, Amazon, (laughs) to get this done because I had this practical goal because in the end I really wanted to reach people who were thinking about engaging themselves politically or in some form of civic action or, or already doing so and giving them a way to do it to avoid what I would call a kind of fatigue that I think we're all feeling right now. You know, this is 14, 15 months later after the inauguration, and it's, it's, it's quite real. And I think I would hope that my book can offer a, uh, a, a manual for, re, for engagement through understanding what's happened. And finally, and let me just add, the point of my book is not Trump per se. I mean, he's a key, key, key figure here, obviously. But it's like this, 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 this whole situation that we're facing took 30 years to build up, and it's going to take some time to dismantle. And that includes this harsh climate of fear and intimidation. And so it's bigger than any one electoral cycle, and it's bigger than any one politician. So should Trump, Trump be gone, the current leadership in Washington be gone, we're going to be facing still a lot of these issues. And this is, I think, where also Chris and I meet up a bit okay. in the sense that we, we're both, cool. you know, we have, we're proposing right. modest hope, nothing extravagant. Okay, okay. We, we need to not cover all the topics that we're going to do right. on the show in one thing. But, no, that's great. That's great. I, 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 um, on the cover of Tropic of Kansas, Corey Doctorow yep. writes, Timely, dark, and ultimately hopeful. It might not make America great again, but then again, it just might. So we, we're talking about the, the thing that converges or that, that overlaps for you gentlemen, I guess, is the idea of the CEO, that whole concept. And you look yeah. back at that in history, as you were talking about a minute before. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, what's so convenient for us that was, we have one uh, as our president right now and even though, like you, like Chris, you said before, that there's been, there's been business, you know. Yeah, you it's know, not a new idea. of business empires or whatever who've been who've led the country. Yeah, I mean, when I started writing the book, it was you know Mitt Romney had just run, right, right, right. and he was yeah. like you know the idea yeah. of this savior CEO as a president. There's this reflexive idea that. Uh, especially among conservatives, that surely the best qualification to run the country is to run a big company. Which, of course, is just... And and having worked in big corporations as the lawyer in the boardroom with CEOs and so on, I was like, oh, well, that's an interesting idea because as anybody who's worked in a big company knows, those don't work like democracies. They're basically dictatorships. And that's a, a very different model for how to run things. Right. Uh, I think that there's that disconnect. It's like where it's like you, you have that strong personality that you like to associate with a president, but it has different checks and balances associated with the presidency. Yeah. Okay, Tracy, while you're here, it's our break time. Yes. Uh, how convenient. <laughs> that works. Uh, so we'll be right back. I'm Thorne Dreyer. This is Rag Radio. 
So this election blows. It's like Mr. Grabber and what's her stupid are trying to sink the SS America Times. Well, they cannot, but I know who's gonna try. Hold on, can't find my pants. I'm a governor, Jerry Brown. My aura smiles, man, and never frowns. Soon I will be president. Obama power will soon go away. I will be their Fuhrer, man. One day I will command all of you. Your kids will meditate in school. Your kids will meditate in school. California, Uber Alice. California, Uber Alice. Uber Alice. California, Uber Alice. Zen fascists will control you 100% Natural, you will jog for the master race And always wear that happy face your eyes can't happen here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're that back. last call at the American Lounge. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, <laughs> that was uh, Chris's California. Call. He, what what yeah. is it called, Tracy? California Uber Alice. It's like a cover. It's a uh, cover of an old Dead Kennedys song. Yeah, uh, by uh, a guy who who whose persona is Frank Sinatra's bastard son, but his name is Toby Huss. He's a TV actor and musician. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it, it, when the song was written, the song was written during the first time that uh, Governor Brown was governor of California, and it's just you know just wait. 30 years and then he's governor again so i guess it kind of works he's got to come out with it again <laughs> it's very sci-fi in a way right first first written in 1980 and then there was a ronald reagan version and later in the 80s and now this is like the obama trump version and, it, and it's funny now because it's like governor brown would be seen as the good guy i guess exactly in yeah. modern uh, society yeah. how things change yeah things change uh all right that that was tracy schultz and and our guest uh christopher brown our who is the author of Tropic of Kansas, which is a uh, dystopian uh, science fiction book with a lot of uh, political implications. And our other guest uh, on the telephone uh, is Rodney Re- Roddy Reed, uh, whose book is Confronting Political Intimidation uh, and Public Bullying. You still there, buddy? Yes, I certainly am. <laughs> okay. All right. What's next? Maybe talking about this idea of the CEO? Yeah, let's, I think it's, there's, there's more material to dig into. It, it's, Trump is interesting because Trump, like you say, is not, he's just not a standard run-of-the-mill. He's, he's like an entrepreneur. I mean, it's kind of like Glenn McCarthy were president. I mean, there's a great example that was just in this week's news of kind of what's different about a CEO president, which was the revelation that... Uh, he's having every member of the White House staff sign a confidentiality agreement, which the <laughs> White House counsel, Don McGahn, was quoted as saying, they was kind of quoted on background as saying, he knew it's unenforceable, probably unconstitutional. You know, it's a restriction on political speech, yet, you know, in a corporate environment, that's the idea. There is no free speech. And this idea of trying to um, impose that sort of standard inside government is a really kind of radically, profoundly different way of approaching things. And how do you deal with the CEO in, uh, 
in your book or with the concept or with the idea of that kind of a leader? I mean, I envision, I kind of take the idea to its limits, right? To its imaginative and sort of logical limits. I sort of, and it's, you know, he's presiding over the country like a kind of America Inc., complete with, a, you know, sort of a privatized military and sort of a kind of corporate government and sort of Carhartt militias running amok through, through the through the, uh, the flyover country. Okay, but that's the actual reporting part for now. What's the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's why, you know, you get called frighteningly prescient when you sort of, you know, when I finished the book in like around Thanksgiving 2014, I was like, oh man, this is so ridiculously implausible. Nobody <laughs> will ever believe this. And I actually sat on it for a few months until then I saw like, oh my God, this is becoming true. So um, it's uh, it's funny how... You know, they say all science fiction is really about the present. Yeah. Uh, you know, my friend uh, Roddy talked about William Gibson, who is a, is a colleague and a, a friend, and he has famously quoted, maybe overquoted, as saying, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And that's true of dystopia, right? There are things around us, right. you know, uh, that are sort of manifestly dystopian or Orwellian. But and then we can still go swimming at Barton Creek. Exactly. <laughs> For now. <laughs> I, I think, you know, uh, this, this, is, this is really uh, important that there are these, you know, it's around us, but what's interesting is that we ourselves and, and many can't see it. And this is where I think the yeah. role of writers, particularly imaginative writers like Chris, comes in. You know, we need a language, we need a story that, you know, brings, brings all this out. In my more pro, uh, literally prosaic way, I, you know, I think we, uh, I make the argument that, look, we kind of know what some of the dots are. You know, we all have our experience, we've seen things, we've witnessed things, uh, many of them not so good. But uh, we're not very good at drawing the dot, uh, drawing lines between those dots or seeing or seeing all the dots together. It's too many to, to hold, and so that's what writers, different kinds of writers, can do. And I think that's what Chris and I have been been up to uh, around this figure of the CEO, but seeing it in this uh, in a larger context at the same time. Do you think there's a chance that we'll actually get all of those dots connected in time? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good question. I, I think we, we can only, but you know, we can only try. I, 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 this is why. I mean, I'm not sure any one piece of fiction or any any one book, short as it might be, will you know perform a miracle. And I think part of the lesson of what we maybe should take away from what's going on is that there aren't any miracles. And when it comes to forms of engagement, uh, which is part of one of, it's the theme of the show. It's got to be much more within reach, something that people can do, something that people can, you know, perhaps feel like they're making a difference on, as opposed to something that's almost, you know, pie in the sky. I'm not saying you don't reach high, but I am saying, uh, you know, these smaller, more local projects, particularly political ones, are where so much can be done and so much, uh, and it can keep people mobilized over the long haul, because what we have, what we're facing, and I think both of our books make clear, is a this is a long haul project. Whatever it is that we're doing to 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 you know resist, if you want to use that word, um, it's bigger than an election cycle, and it's about a state of the culture, and that take, that takes a lot of people and a lot of mobilization, and it's not a it's not a there's no quick fix to that. Well, and you need a we need a. A, a kind of grand vision, though the, the way right. to get out of dystopia is to have a 
somewhat of a clear vision of what utopia would yeah, look like. You know, utopia is not a real place, but you can kind of see it from here. Well, that's and we right. sort of lost well, that. I guess the idea of discussion. utopia is that it's 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 a maybe not attainable, but it's, it's aspirational. A, it's, it's aspirational. Well, and yeah. th- and that's the function of the imagination. I mean, what just strikes drives me to distraction, uh, Chris and Thorne, is is just looking around me and looking at the you know everything from uh, reporters to politicians, the media in general. So they have no imagination. They can't imagine themselves, you know, they can barely anticipate the sun coming up, or they just think it's going to be the same as always. And of course, we need that imagination. We need something that takes us out of our, whatever it is, takes the blinders off and takes us out of our everyday routines. And that's where I think especially fiction writers are, are, are powerful. That's, so we need to see the forests and not just the trees. Right, but also imagine the forest differently, you know. Well, yes, yes. That's Imagine a world that still has forests. Yeah. Well, good point. <laughs> would, you, would you cue up some Beatles, some John Lennon? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, something to you know, keep us uh, upbeat a little bit. It's like in, uh, thinking of, like of the future positively. But that's a, that's a really good point it's like for that y'all bring up is like that uh, we – I guess since we're in the middle of it now and it's like uh, every day there's like something that's uh, outrageous that comes out, it's kind of hard to kind of see a pathway to uh, see through to the other side. Right. Uh, Is is, is there anything that y'all guys might have to kind of help foster that? I think that, well, go ahead. I shouldn't. It seems like what you were just talking, talking about, Roddy was the, uh, talking about the grassroots kind of organizations yeah. is is and that's uh, mo- most anybody that I have on this show who's interested in social change right, right now points to what's happening on the ground in this country. Right. You know, and we're seeing incredible things happen and right. we're seeing, pl- you know, and you talk about indivisible, you know, there's our revolution. There's all of these different groups. The uh, DSA, the Democratic Socialist, now has 800 plus members in Austin, Texas. That's amazing. Uh, uh, yeah. And, uh, and you know, Bernie Sanders is out there doing a lot. And, and the reaction that the Parkland kids are getting. And the kids. Yeah. That's yeah. right. So it's younger people who are, you know, they're, it's, it's a young, will lead them. Uh, you know, a child will lead them. <laughs> they're definitely going to help us sort of imagine a different <laughs> better, future better when we see it. how unsatisfied they are with what we're presenting them as the status quo. Yes, right? yes, and it's not just about guns. I mean, I, I happened to be in Washington last weekend uh, for a book festival, oh, and I was wow. able to see the March for Our Lives, which wow. is a, and it really was just all these kids and kids dragging their parents out to this giant protest and kind of uh, an exciting paradigm shift that way. And it was a really positive energy to it. And I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction you hear, not just with things like uh, the, the, the threat to their lives from violence of active shooters, but, uh, but the threat to their lives with with violence from uh, active journalists like Laura Ingram. Yeah, and just with the kind of economic situation they're presented with yeah, and just yeah. sort of oh, saying, yeah. like, can't we do better, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think we can emphasize enough this, this generational gap. I mean, American households have been had stagnant wages just to on the economic front for over 30, 40 years, and that's a lot of people. And and also, but but you know, as it came out in the 2016 elections, it became clear that you know the millennials, particularly, you know, it's just it's their nose is rubbed in it. 
with respect to p- climate change, they've been written off, or at least they feel they've been written off by the older generations, you know, my generation, your generation, our generation. And, I, and now we have these high school kids who are younger, or, or elementary school kids, younger still, and they just feel like they've, they're just left exposed, not only to guns, but to, you know, the, the global warming and all the rest. Uh, high tuition for college education and, and you know, and a health care system that's under threat again. So, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, they're, they're vulnerable, and they, and they know it, and they're doing something about yeah, it. Yeah, it's so. amazing how the right wing is chasing after them now, though, isn't it? So, um, well, you know, there's no holds barred in this current harsh climate. I mean, really. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and that's, that, you know, I'm, I don't want to sound you know, uh, old or something. I think that's to be expected, but really, yeah. um, this is... If you need somebody to sound old, I'll do it for you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but uh, the the other thing that we have to look at that's happening right now in politics, the, the thing, there are things that feel positive. Right. You know? And the other thing is women, uh, suburban women, uh, are are turning against Trump in droves uh, and, and uh, women of color. Uh, that there's a whole lot happening there, and that one of the things is going to be as far I don't know how sometime, how we got this into electoral politics, and we can jump back out of it. But uh, young people traditionally don't vote very much, That's and changing. so we'll have to see yeah. if now the kind of you know invigorated uh, you know committed. Uh, action that's happening that was based on real stuff that happened to people's lives, whether that changes or not. Well, you know, we just had an election in which I think for the first time in many people's lives, you know, people under the age of 35 or 40 even, they felt like, oh, my vote really does matter. Now I see that. And I think that uh, there's been a sort of an increasing dissatisfaction with the sense that we don't that that you know that the the operation of the two party supposedly democratic system is kind of a fraud, and I think that you know part of what I try to imagine in my book is a sort of an underground that's trying to incubate something that looks more like an authentically participatory iteration of democracy and uh, and I'm hopeful that, as you see you know the demographic shifts that are driving all of this that are sort of looming behind the scene that you're going to see something more like that that's going to realize some of the things that we thought the Internet was going to deliver to us early on, the potential for networks to incubate more engagement in how our societies run. And so I think, I think we can, and to, we can yeah. see some of that trying to happen. Right, right. Okay, let's, let's slide back a little bit into the, 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 the discussion about the intersection of the, of the uh, concepts in this book. I know, uh, Roddy, you wrote in, in this kind of these suggestions that we had, you, you wrote, you said, how a long, how, how a long, tra- long transformations in media, social media over the last 30 years and the 16-year war on terror has led to a revolution in the limits of acceptable public speech and behavior. Right. So respond to that, and then I, let's talk about bullying a little bit. Okay, well, uh, a couple things real quick. This this might take a few minutes, but I don't want to hog, hog the hour. Um, uh, it's but, be, if you do, it's best if we can have at least some going back and forth. Yeah, that right. sounds great. So but, anyhow... Um, but you're great. All, what you've been doing is terrific. Okay, great. So anyway, um, what we have is, you know, and this, Chris and I utterly agree that, what's trans, that there's been a transformation in the American workplace, and then uh, and also I would, uh, and, uh, and this figure of the... Savior CEO or folk hero CEO, that's been in the culture, but I think it took, a, and I think Chris agrees, it took, a, it kind of got radicalized and became really 
uh, something that the business press just lauded to the skies. You know, this aggressive, bullying, ty- tyrannical CEO who was downsizing companies and so on and so forth. That's one part of the culture, and that's where in workplaces where adults spend the majority of their waking hours unless they're self-employed, okay? So that's a good chunk of the culture, but there are other corners of the culture that also have had transformations, and that's obviously K through 12 elementary and and high school in terms of, uh, you know, the, um, you know, patrol, you know, the the, the hallways are patrolled by police. I mean, all these things have happened, and not to mention the school shooting. And then, um, and then you have obviously the media and social media. And uh, quickly about this media, what we used to have in the 50s and 60s and early 70s was broadcast media with basically three stations. And there was a sort of unified public, public, uh, you know, sphere where people would, you know, hear different points of view and so on and so forth. All that broke up, however, with the advent of cable TV and, and you know, it fragmented it all. And that uni- formerly unified part of the media had limits on what you could say and not say in terms of a kind of, it wasn't just being polite, but it was also a question of respect and, uh, you know, and honoring whoever it was that was with you on the show. And so that fell by the wayside. And, um, you know, beginning in the late, late 70s and 80s, and there are always exceptions to that. You can, um, but anyhow, uh, and then uh, you had the rise of, you know, talk TV and AM talk radio, and everyone was listening to the, who they wanted to and didn't have to listen to other people. And the, 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 tone, the tone took, you know, a very aggressive turn. It particularly it took a turn that was extremely hostile to feminism, women, women people of color, gays, uh, progressives, liberals, and so on and so forth. This is all part of the so-called culture wars that, you know, raged throughout the 80s and early 90s. Okay, so we're, that's you, we're, the groundwork, in, one, in my view. We have a minute before we have to take a break. Okay, so anyway, so all that, all these different arenas began to, you know, have these transformations that changed the limits of the public, you know, acceptable public speech and behavior. And then they began to, so what's legitimate in one corner of the culture began to legitimize what was in another corner. And then they just had this, they created this kind of synergy where you have a, you know, a generalized culture of, of intimidation and bullying throughout the U.S. That's my basic theory. Okay. Okay. Uh, we'll be right back. But uh, that was uh, R- Roddy Reed's basic theory. And Roddy Reed and Christopher Brown are my uh, guests here on RAG Radio. And I, I, I have to tell you, it's, it's, I think it's a fascinating discussion. Each of them has written a book. And, they see the, and they're incredibly different uh, kinds of books, different genre, uh, different style, different feel. And, and yet they cover, one, you know, one is science fiction material, and one yeah. is a book of essays, but they cover some of these same themes. Yeah. And those are what those themes are what we're talking about today. Tracy Schultz.
Great Steve Earl. Oh, so he good. He is great. I'll tra- I, is my mic? Oh, it's just my yeah. volume. It's just <laughs> I got my <you>. volume. <laughs> but yeah, well, can you hear me? Can you hear me? <laughs> but yeah, ahead, we, we were talking during the break about how much uh, Steve Earl's like was uh, definitely uh, a, a lightning rod like during uh, 9-11, where he, he was one of the few that was talking about it's like going into Iraq and things like that. And he was saying that, that that's an obligation as a patriot, as a, as a citizen. You have a moral obligation to question your government. And he was one of the few. Yeah, one of the other few who did it at that time was Keith Olbermann. Yeah, you're right. Who stood up alone, really. Uh, this was long before MSNBC with all, the, I mean, I guess he was early in MSNBC. That's right. But he was, he was, you know, and then he went off on his sort of ego and ways. I, but I he, think he we... Was, he was amazing. He would sit up there and address the president. And I think we underestimate the extent to which, you know, 9-11 and the way the culture turned after 9-11 exactly. had a really profoundly toxic effect on our political culture. It's a big part of what I was trying to do in Tropic of Kansas, it's, which is a, it's kind of a, a post-9-11 speculative fiction novel set in an America where 9-11 never happened. And instead, all of that dark energy of the state is directed toward the domestic population. But I remember watching, uh, you know, not long after 9-11, the, the, that sort of weird TV show, 24, this kind of crazy techno thriller that had kind of nailed right. the zeitgeist just right. And there was a scene at the beginning of the second season where the president uh, portrayed as a progressive African-American man, and this was before Obama came on the scene, uh, is watching on the TV on his desk in his West Coast Oliveville office as a journalist that he's ordered to be detained is tortured. Mm-hmm. And I was like, some worm has really turned in the culture when the idea that we're torturing people is okay. And, uh, you know, that we can, you know, lock people up on in secret prisons without habeas corpus and without due process and all of those kinds of things without kind of belaboring it they make it possible for the kind of dark turns in our politics that we're seeing today, I think, and bully bosses and tyrant CEOs right. and all of this. And that's, the issue of torture point. has reemerged now uh, because of uh, suggested appointments to the cabinet. Right. Uh, and uh, I think what happened is that, is that people also were very scared. They, it made them feel very, very vulnerable. Right. And so they were open to demagogues uh, telling them who the enemy was. Right. Well, I think, uh, you know, not, I can agree more with Chris that 9-11 was a turning point, and then what happened was that, you know, a kind of mode of campaigning that used to involve a lot of intimidation and everything from racist attack ads to 
you know, maligning the character of one's opponent, that was part of an election cycle, right? And then with 9-11, it became not only uh, a way for Bush eventually to get himself reelected, but it became a way of governing, meaning every day we yes. were there, there these code orange alerts based on false data and false intelligence to, you know, basically push everyone in line. And I think what we're seeing now is, you know, a mode of campaigning and based on intimidation and all these things, and then uh, and I kind of, and this is why the war on terror. I mentioned that that you mentioned, Thorn, is that it's course in uh, you know uh, daily life in public public discourse, and now what used to be restricted to these you know one moments of you know just war, uh, you know uh, the beginnings of war or a political campaign, it's now twenty four seven. Every day we get doses of this stuff, and this is what we're dealing with, and this is the poison that's everywhere. Governance through fear. Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah. And, and there's a parallel, too, with, with, with guns uh, and the incredible march of the guns and, how, and, the, and the NRA. Right. Uh, because they feed on that same fear, I think. Yeah, there's a thing about the Second Amendment and the gun control stuff, though, that I think we don't really engage with, which is the fact that the subtext of all of that isn't, is, is really, to me, about this idea of revolution that's kind of the third rail of American politics, the song we were just hearing from Steve Earle, right? I mean, and in Texans, we get it 2x. We get our, you know, American creation myth, that, you know, July 4th, and then we have our Texas revolution creation myth that every Texas school kid gets like three years of during their education before they graduate from high school. And so we teach ourselves that, you know, we're born through revolution, and then the Second Amendment uh, enthusiasts, that's kind of what you heard them talking about. And then it was like, well, I want to be able to defend myself against my government. You know, on, on November 8th, 2016, I was kind of like, oh, maybe I need that right too, after all. But by not really having a healthy way to talk about how do we achieve transformational change in the society, we kind of let that fester in a way that expresses itself then in really unhealthy ways. Right. I also would just add around guns, Chris, that, um, you know, I don't know if you all remember, but um, in New Hampshire and Arizona, around the Obamacare debates, and Obama would hold town halls, the Tea Party folks would show up with loaded weapons within a mile or so where Obama was speaking. And so, and, you know, and that sense of, I would call, you know, white entitlement, white defiance, um, connected to guns is also what, guns are about. They're not simply forms of personal enjoyment, but silent and not so silent forms of political intimidation, you know, a potential threat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's definitely uh, a a ramping up. And uh, even like today, I think it's like in New Jersey, they're talking about certain types of restrictions on ammo. Uh, so you can talk, and they were there was an interview just today, and it's like one one of the guys who's like who's talking against it was saying, well, it's like I need to have the, the biggest cartridges that I can, and that can hold as much bullets as possible because it's like that one possible scenario that may happen where somebody, an, a group, a gang might be attacking my house, I want to be able to defend my personhood, even though the odds of that is so minute. And the odds of the, of that person actually shooting the right people. Uh, being <laughs> even more remote, so, right? Is even right. more remote. Like being this effective. whole idea of, syst- of of teachers with guns. You know, yeah. uh, you know who are, who are they going to shoot? And who can? I mean, even seasoned police officers who've been in right. many many situations. Right. The chances of they're actually hitting a target are very slim. Any any uh, police officer with assault that has uh, several years, it's like under his belt. Would say it's like the the, the biggest thing is to avoid a gunfight. 
Yeah, but even if they can't avoid it, they can't hit anybody, or they hit the wrong person, or they have to be right, <laughs> right. point blank. So You know, in the olden uh, days, apparently the NRA has, was as much about gun safety as it was about the Second Amendment, and right. then it, got, it was taken over by um, a whole set of people, what was it, 20, 25 years ago. Right. And now they're putting up videos accusing Jews and blacks of fomenting violence and that they should be dealt with in, 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 this, in, the, in a violent way. And that happened last summer. Right. And Black Lives Matter responded very fast with a counter video. But I'm just saying, it's, 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 this poison is it's something else. It's beyond, almost beyond one's imagination. I had yeah. several friends tell me they thought that NRA video from last summer with this dystopian revolution version of America starring Dana mm-hmm. Loesch, the TV commentator, they thought it was a, 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 an underground trailer for my book, yeah. but it wasn't. <laughs> One of the reasons we have to remember, and you know, to, as far as where the NRA is really coming from, is the Second Amendment. You know, a standing militia. Uh, one of the main reasons they wanted, they needed a standing militia at that time was to chase down runaway slaves, uh, and, right. and 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 uh, to uh, to fight Indians. Well, that's in my book. I have you know, I kind of play with that idea, and I have these, like I said, kind of redneck militias, uh, and they're busy chasing down political dissidents. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Actually, one of the things that I thought could have happened uh, after with the advent of the new administration in Washington early last year was that some kind of, you know, Trump as a CEO, he wants personal loyalty, you know, loyalty to him. That's why Comey was fired. And uh, and that's in keeping with, uh, you know, the the ethos of the American corporate workplace. But um, but uh, and so this personalization of power, I thought, was going to extend to law enforcement agencies and the intelligence agencies. But Trump has alienated a good, you know, the intelligence world, and they are working, I think, very steadily to just do him in. But uh, but I thought still, you know, in terms of police, uh, you know, local police, state police, and so on, there would be a, a more of a concerted, if not if not overt, effort on the part of the Trump administration to. Get them to move from loyalty to the from the loyalty to the rule of law and the Constitution to him, okay. and I'm not sure that's happened. And thank, yeah. and that's one thing that I was worried that might. Okay, we're down to seven minutes, uh, and this is one of the things that you that you brought up in our communications, and uh, and I always like to leave with something kind of maybe a little hopeful. Uh, and that's the idea of the, the, what you wrote here, was what modes of political engagement work best to maintain and improve democracy in these cir- circumstances, and then what does the future look like? So why don't we close out talking about that for about six or seven minutes? Yeah, on an, on an upbeat note. I mean, I, to me, a, a really key component, as we were talking about, is having a sort of coming up with an aspirational version of the society that I think is something we've lost. And I see the kernels of that in various places. I see lots of trends that create, you know, all kinds of open territory to explore the idea of a new politics, whether it's, you know, the sort of declining importance of nation states and the sort of breaking down of borders. You know, we had this horrible incident on the, at the kind of the border wall in Gaza and Israel today. And we have what's going on in here, but those are really about the fact that everybody knows that borders have a kind of a short half-life. The rise of networks, the sense that we're at an ecological tipping point and kind of 
everybody, well, not quite everybody, but a definitive majority is sort of recognizing that, and a kind of demographic tipping point where the idea of the historical majority, at least in this country and in Europe, is, is changing. And I think that represents an opportunity to try to think of what a better future looks like. We have incremental and discrete aspects of that, but we don't have a kind of coherent theory of it. But I think that on a kind of community basis, we're seeing that emerge and things like we were talking about with this new generation coming on with a kind of a new green politics that sort of tries to imagine like what is the world that these, uh, you know, our future grandkids want to have that that's coming on. Coupled with that is kind of grassroots day-to-day -day local activism, which, you know, we have going on here. And that I think Roddy has some really great hand, hand, handbook kind of points for how you deal with that. Yeah, yeah I, 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 it's, it's got to be both. It's got to be a vision. It's a vision that takes us out of ourselves. It's something bigger than ourselves, bigger than even maybe our own generation. But certainly it's about a better future and has to be combined with the nuts and bolts of, you know, say, even governing. I mean, it's sort of like social movement, visionary social movements on the one hand, and something that might be called nuts and bolts, you know, everyday governing. And that's what groups like Indivisible, Swing Left, uh, and Sister District Project are all about, which, you know, it looks, it's a bit technical, it could be a little boring, but they also know that it's in for the long, they're in for the long run. It's more than any one election cycle, and they need, and, uh, and they need to really create a new political infrastructure and a new kind of mobilization that keeps people engaged and thinking and hoping. And that's why I think Bernie Sanders' initial idea after the, toward the end of the elections last year was, or the year before, was let's, you know, go local. You know, really go local, dog catcher and on up, let's put our own people in these places. He's trying to create a new generation of political leaders, basically, or at least that's what he was pushing for. And one thing I'll just say quickly is that I think one reason he was pushing for that is that at the national level, when you try to do these things, and that's important, of course, and what we've seen in Washington is clearly a national thing, this march and so on, these different marches. Well, at the local level, it avoids all the stuff having to do with the national security state and national and foreign policy, and, 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 and which, you know, shuts down progressive stuff. It also gets away from free market obsessions of the political class and, and, and the national media. And so if you were trying to propose something alternative, you can experiment with it, play with it, get some stuff done locally more readily than at the national level. And then, it, of course, adds up to a national transformation. We had, it's, we had Tom Hayden. Tom Hayden was on this show. And oh. uh, one thing, uh, you know, he was three or four times, but one time he, he talked about the exact same thing we're talking about right now and, and i mean it's, it's especially about how things change things are going to have to change on a regional basis and he said we're good you know we're going to have to change california we can't change the country yeah and if we're going to we, we do grassroots organizing it needs to be not only about recapturing control of the legacy systems of american democracy but also better controlling these new systems of the kind of corporate commons and the you right. know online version of the polity and uh you know, those are corporate networks that are designed to manipulate us, but the users of those networks, as we've seen with Facebook users reacting to the revelations about Cambridge Analytica, have the power to influence the governance of those new networks and to use them towards more emancipatory ends. And I think that that's the most exciting aspect of the future that I see from here. And 
to overcome false news, to overcome the anti-fact, the, uh, this idea that there's really just lots of different ideas about what's real. Yeah. That seems to me to be almost the biggest thing we have to overcome. Well, maybe we could turn that towards imagining, yeah, we can, we can invent our own reality, and so let's get about that <laughs> project as a, a community and find a one that we want to live in. Social movements create facts on the ground, okay? And it's not simply through talk. It's through actions and, and you know, uh, political and otherwise. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, and that, that's, that, that, those, facts, those facts will speak for themselves. Okay, uh, we still have about 30 seconds. Final word. Chris? Um. That's okay. Well, anyhow. We're, okay, we're going to leave speechless. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I'll, yeah. I'll just okay. reiterate what I said, yeah. that I okay. think uh, utopia is a, not a real place, but you can see it from here. And if we kind of collectively get into, you know, it's not for one author or another to imagine a better future. There's a kind of community project there to be undertaken. Okay, we've got to leave it at that. (laughs) We've got to leave it at that. This has been a wonderful show uh, with uh, uh, Christopher Brown and Roddy Reed. If you need to get in touch with us, ragradio at koop.org.